Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. Well, they say you can't improve what you can't measure. And that's particularly true when it comes to closing the gender pay gap and to understanding the issues that hinder women's rise to leadership positions in society and particularly in the workplace. Thankfully, there's a lot of research going on to discover why things are so slow to change to improve the position of women in the workplace at all levels and particularly women in leadership positions on boards. The issue of quotas is always controversial, but getting the numbers right, analysing whether or not they work, is part of the research and of particular interest to today's guest on the podcast, Dr Anne-Laurie Humbert. She was in Trinity College recently talking about her research work in the area. She's an expert statistician who analyses complex sets of data to see what's really going on and to analyse the effectiveness of various targeted actions such as gender quotas and equality development efforts. I asked her to talk to me a little bit about her work and especially about the effectiveness or otherwise of gender quotas. Uh, I am Dr. Anne-Laure Humbert. I work uh, at the Global Centre for Gender and Leadership at Cranfield School of Management in the UK. I am a specialist in gender statistics, uh, so I've dedicated uh, my career uh, at, uh, and I specialise in measuring uh, all aspects of gender inequalities. And of course they say you can't improve what you don't measure, so we really need the input of, of measurement, I presume. Actually, this is a bit of a motto for me. It's actually one of the most prominent thing. If you go to my website, www.genderstatistics.com, you will see that I start everything by what we treasure, we measure. Tell me about your index. I know Eileen Drew here in Wiser was complimenting you on the index. Tell me a little bit about the index that you've designed. I was uh, privileged enough a few years ago to uh, spend a few years working for the European Institute for Gender Equality, uh, where I was employed as a researcher and uh, where I was working with the team that developed uh, the uh, uh, Gender Equality Index. It's a composite indicator uh, which looks at measuring gender equality in the context of the EU policy framework. So it builds upon uh, other composite indicators, such as the ones developed by UNDP, the Gender Related Development Index, or the World Economics Forum, G- uh, Gender Gap Index. But it uh, is more uh, appropriate for the European context. For example, uh, in our context in Europe, when we talk about education, what matters is education at third level, not at primary level. And there is also the fact that we're very lucky in the context of Europe to have quite a lot of indicators that can populate such a composite indicators compared to indicators that are developed to measure gender equality on a global scale. What is a composite, I suppose? It's pulling information from different sources together, is that it? A composite indicator is exactly this. It is taking a range of different indicators about different parts of a concept and creating a statistical system uh, that actually creates one score. So it is uh, in some way averaging, but I'm using the term averaging very lightly here. It is uh, just really trying to have one common measures that tells us uh, in summary what the situation is Is it easier to make comparisons between countries if we have composite indicators? 
It is certainly easier to make comparisons between countries if you have composite indicators, but it depends on the quality of the composite indicators. The problem of composite indicators mm. is that they are summary measures and it is sometimes difficult to fully understand what is in them. At the same time, they are very useful to understand at a glance what some key problems are and where progress needs to be. Tell me about the talk you're giving here today about quotas. What can we learn? The talk I'm giving today is building on some of the work that I am doing at the Cranfield School of Management uh, with one of my colleagues, Professor Elizabeth Keelan. Uh, we are looking at uh, the relationship between gender equality in societies in Europe and the representation of women on boards. At the basis of this is the uh, assumption that the more gender equal a society is, the greater uh, the equality at corporate level. We're also very interested in the debates on quotas because throughout Europe they have proved to be quite a controversial topic. And of course, when I'm asked whether quotas work, there is only one answer to this. Yes, of course they work. The real question is, are they desirable? And this is not really the question that I want to answer. What I want to look at instead is look at the context in which quotas have been implemented. And when you do that, you realize that the context for quotas matters greatly. So based on our research uh, on panel data uh, from uh, ranging from 2005 to 2014, we do find support for uh, the fact that in more gender equal countries, we have greater participation of women on boards. We also, of course, find that there are more women on boards in the countries that have implemented quotas. But what is very interesting is that when we actually test for the interaction of gender equality and quotas, we find that this is what matters together with gender equality. So in summary, what this suggests is that there cannot really be quotas independently from making sure that we push for societies that are more gender equal. And in a context in the EU or in many national contexts where the business case is put forward to the detriment of um, an argument for social justice or fairness, that is something that is dangerous. We need to see the two as completely related and we need to give its right place to the argument of fairness and social justice. Another aspect that comes up frequently, I think particularly in Norway, is the, the holistic aspect of uh, climate change and um, you know, having a very holistic approach to an equal society that is actually better for the environment, it's better for society, and it's better for business. So the three are interrelated, uh, and you know, these aspects have not perhaps been looked at closely enough. Would you agree? I think, I suppose, one response that you could have to this is if, uh, if you look at uh, some of the arguments that have been put forward, specifically in uh, relation to uh, gender, gender equality in science. And this, they say that three things need to be fixed here. And I think that relates very much to what you're talking about. They say that what needs to be fixed is, of course, the number of women. 
But secondly, it's the institutions making sure that we transform the way we operate. But their final point is that addressing inequalities in science is going to also change what is on the agenda, what we're researching, what is important, what we pay attention to. Very good. Have you managed to look at any statistics relating to Ireland and gender equality and what have you discovered? I look at uh, EU statistics uh, regularly, so of course when I come to Ireland uh, I looked a little bit at the context of Ireland. I mean, we had the marriage bar here mm. in Ireland which, you know, cut out a whole generation of women from going forward in their, yes, in their career prospects, you know? Yes, the marriage bar, if I'm not mistaken, was introduced in 1934-1936 and revoked in 1973. So it was only for the public service. It was revoked when Ireland entered the European Union. And this is, if you look at Irish society, it's something that is actually very interesting because there's been such a change in society from a society where the role of women was extremely traditional to a society which is very much on par, mostly, with the rest of Western Europe. And if you look at figures now, inequalities persist. You uh, have uh, certainly a lot of segregation in Ireland. Uh, for 2015, uh, about 46% of uh, women participated in the labour force. But when it comes to uh, managers, then they represented only 35%. You can compare that to 79% of women working as clerical support workers. There's still quite a lot of work to be done. When you measure the income uh, differences between uh, men and women, you, you, I was interested to see that you, you analyse it down to an hourly basis, is that right? Uh, and why do you do that and what does that show? I think it's always very important to capture the gender pay gap in terms of early earnings and annual earnings, or at least monthly earnings, to take into account part-time work. So for the total population, the early pay gap is at 14%, and we have women earning just above 22 euros per hour, compared to just above 26% for men, so these are figures for 2014. But if you uh, take a look at the monthly pay gap, this actually jumps up to 26%. And that represents, uh, on a monthly basis, about uh, 2,800 uh, for women in euros, uh, compared to 3,900 for men. Is there anything we can do to address this? I mean, are there any practical things that can be done to address? Because in theory, everybody should be paid the same. It's illegal to, to, under EU legislation, isn't it? So why, do we know why it's happening or what can we do about it? Certainly, there's a lot of research that has been done and that has been trying to look at the decomposition of what is direct and indirect discrimination. At the moment in the UK, there are uh, many developments uh, there because uh, soon uh, top companies will have to disclose the gender pay gap that will be uh, uh, imposed by the government. That is certainly going to be a step forward. I think we need to realize as a society the consequences that this had. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I did uh, some research on the gender gap in pensions 
We were building upon the work of the European Commission, and we actually found that the gender gap in pension for 2012 stood at a massive 38%. That's quite shocking, isn't it? It is absolutely shocking. And you can really understand that figure as the sum of discrimination over a lifetime. That's what it is really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, in summary, do you think that um, the, the whole area of quotas is a good idea? Or does it just create a small circle of women who are earning high income and the rest of us aren't? I think there are three points that I would like to uh, answer this with. I think the first one is talking about the phenomenon of what's known as the golden skirts, and which I'm very critical of, is actually a fallacy. I think it goes into discourses of seeing quotas as a threat to what is seen as a meritocratic system when it is, in fact, far from meritocratic. I think it makes assumptions that, as a result of quotas, unqualified women will be appointed. And that is not supported by evidence at all. There is no reason, given that women are now as educated, if not more with the younger generations um, than men, that we are, do not have a qualified talent pool of people. And I think it's also um, a reaction from some men uh, because implicitly when you have quotas, you deny some men from the opportunity to be appointed on boards. And this has been very eloquently described uh, in the work of Jude Brown at Cambridge. Uh, and discussed in terms of whether it is reasonable for some of these men to feel entitled to these positions. Another very important issue is that we focus very much on women in the C-suit. But the reality is that for many of us, we will come nowhere near these positions. We are starting to have data to measure what is happening in EU countries. And we certainly have data lower than in organizations through labor force surveys. However, what we do not fully understand yet is what's happening in the levels below the C-suit. And this is really imperative. We really need to understand what's going on in the pipeline and how we can develop more diversity, more inclusion in that pipeline so that later we can really truly have a situation where we have equality in leadership without having to resort to uh, quotas. What I want to make clear is that when we talk about quotas, we talk about rectifying the underrepresentation of women. But sometimes it helps to flip the problem. Why is it that we do not talk about the over-representation of men? Can we not see this framed very differently and see that at the moment we operate in a system which is riddled with power relations and in which there are already quotas, albeit implicit ones? That was Dr. Anne-Laurie Humbert, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the Global Centre for Gender and Leadership, Cranfield University School of Management in the UK. 
I like that idea of switching the conversation from talking about the underrepresentation of women to the overrepresentation of men. Food for thought as we approach International Women's Day. If you want to get in touch, you can follow us on Twitter at Leading Women Pod. We also have the website womeninleadership.ie. And although we're based in Ireland, this podcast gets picked up all over the world. So we'd love to hear from you and tell us a little bit about where you're from, why you listen. If you have any suggestions for women you think we might be interested in hearing from on the podcast, do get in touch with us by email info at womeninleadership.ie or you can contact us via Twitter and Facebook. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti and all the team, goodbye. Thank you.